Father, my heart is full and it is grateful for you and your kindness and the ways that you show us love. Uh, Father, I ask, would you please bless right now and give us ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, hearts to, to, to be sensitive to what you're doing in our lives. Uh, Lord, I want to be the first to say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the ways that you do not judge us according to our sins. As the psalmist says, you don't count sins. Otherwise, who could approach you? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Lord, thank you that you are teaching us your ways through your son, Jesus Christ. Please bless now. In his name I pray, amen. All right. I want to talk about grace. This is exciting. Works, grace, the tension of the law, the tension of grace. And see if we can't better understand the Apostle Paul's heart. Uh, before I get into Romans 11, let me do just a couple of scriptures to get you focused in on uh, this idea about works. Paul is really concerned about this. To him, works and grace are critical in understanding the gospel. Like if you don't get this, you're not getting the gospel. For example, Paul writes in Romans 9 uh, regarding Rachel and the twins. Though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad. It's like the baby in utero, the fetus in utero, is morally neutral. This child, these two boys haven't done anything good or bad. Why? So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul also writes later on in the chapter, chapter 9, God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Did he do that? Yes. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy. Paul writes in Romans 9.30, uh, why, why is God doing these things and why is it that Gentiles get in and, and Jews are out? Why? It is because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Uh, a good definition of grace, a good definition of mercy that I heard years ago goes something like this. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I think that's a great way to understand those two perspectives, grace and mercy. Let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about grace. Let's do our best to see the bigger picture. We've got lots of people visiting here this morning for the first time. And so, Christ Church, I need you to be on your best behavior. Do not embarrass your father in front of the, the, the kids here. Um, I've, I've told them that this is very interactive. It's a, you are free. You know this. You're free to ask questions. You're free to engage. There's going to come a point in the service when I expect you to use your spiritual gifts and to speak up and encourage the body of Christ. Bruce Trice is here, so we know it's going to be good. So Bruce is here. He's warming his hands at a mug of coffee. I know it's cold, Bruce. All right. <clears throat> Grace. Let's look at Romans 11, and we'll focus in on this, this text. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Remember, there's a concern. Is Israel going to heaven? Is Israel going to hell? What's going on with Israel? Paul's heart is broken over Israel. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God says, Yahweh says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So let's work through that together, okay? A couple of things um, I want you to, to pay attention to. This phrase right here, I say then in Greek, historically we should see that as a cue, a little reminder that this letter was meant to be heard, not read with the eyes, but heard with the ears. And the person who is dictating the scribe, possibly hired by Phoebe, is literally trained in public speaking as well as writing. And this guy is going to go with the team into Rome and read this letter to some of the larger, uh, more, more resourceful churches that are in homes, but most likely also in the churches that met in the tenement apartment buildings and the poor sections of the city of Rome. I say then, this is meant to be heard, God has not rejected his people, has he? The Greek construction is very intense here, and Paul is, is literally using syntax tools to communicate something very intense. Let me give it to you this way. When Paul writes and juxtaposes these words together, it's saying this kind of, a, of, kind of force. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? As though it is absolutely absurd to think that he might. Or to think that he would. It's that kind of force. It is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous to think that Yahweh would reject his people. Meganoida. May it never be. No way, man. There is no way Yahweh is going to abandon Israel. Reject Israel. By the way, the concept of rejection... Uh, in Greek, it bears the force of to shove, to push out, to shove, repudiate, reject. Um, uh, let's talk about divorce just for a minute to understand and appreciate the word rejection. Uh, in ancient Mediterranean cultures, a divorce action could be as simple as this. The male would grab his wife, uh, sometimes uh, humiliate her by disrobing her, sometimes not. Take her, take her to the, door, the, the, the doorway of the house and shove her out. Reject her. And all he has to do is publicly yell, you are not my wife anymore. That's all he has to say. And the divorce is final. No lawyers, no fees, no nothing. Public shaming and a public statement of shoving out, you are no longer my wife. And she's gone. She, let, she now lost the household. That's the idea in Mediterranean culture of what rejection would be like. So Paul is saying, has God taken the bride Israel and shoved her over the threshold 
and said, you are no longer my wife. You are rejected. Paul said, no way. No way at all. And then you would expect Paul, who's brilliant, to offer some really weighty theological reasons why God would not reject his wife, Israel. Things like the everlasting covenant, things like the law, things like God can't lie. But he doesn't. Paul says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Why does Paul get so personal all of a sudden? Why do you think? Why would he do that? Come on. We're, home. We're family at the dinner table. Why would he do that? All of a sudden bring up his own story. Colby. Paul's history um, was one of growing up to be a, a Pharisee. And his conversion was a, a huge stumbling block in that early church period. For him to say to a collection through his whole ministry, a collection of the chosen and the Gentiles, he's saying, I have a personal investment in all of this from before and my ancestors. So I'm invested in this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. why in the world, you know, it, it's like the captain of a sinking ship saying, I trust the lifeboat. Mm-hmm. He's invested that point. Yes, you're getting I'm at invested. it. You're getting at it. Someone else? Why would he get so personal? Paul, why? Paul himself says an example of how God's not rejected. He's a Jew. God is not Yes. Yes, which is, you're sharing the same idea. The fact is, hey, if there's anybody who deserves to be rejected, it's me. I, Paul, the chief sinner, right? The persecutor of the church. If there's anybody that, that deserves to be divorced, it's me, Paul. I deserve it. And yet, I am the one that has found hope. So if there's hope for Paul, there's hope for the nation of Israel. It's beautiful that he uses such deep, heartfelt, personal language. Here it is again, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then look at he shifts into this really interesting story. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. And what is the divine response? To him I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So this is interesting. Elijah, was he anointed by Yahweh? Was Elijah the prophet anointed? Sure. Was he powerful? Performing miracles? The voice, the, the mouth of God? Sure. Speaking prophetic. Oh yeah, this is a power player, Right? And even though he had all those credentials and all those assets, he still got it wrong. He didn't get it. He had a faulty perspective. And I don't know that he's having a pity party. We don't need to psychoanalyze the guy. But uh, I'd say he's stressed out. <laughs> what do you think? Think he's stressed out a bit? Uh, he's trying to call Israel to repentance. Nothing's working. Lord, they've killed all your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I'm alone. I'm the only one left. 
I'm the only guy in Israel that seeks you. And now they're trying to kill me. I think he's, he's, he's desperate. And God says, oh, really? You think you're it? You're the one man bearing the weight of the world right now of my kingdom? Sorry. A little bigger than you, man. I've got 7,000 men. You have no idea where they are or who they are. And they have never bowed the knee to a pagan god. You're not the only one. I'm sorry. It doesn't rest on your little shoulders. God's ways are higher than our ways. Now, why did he do that? Um, Randy, don't give the answer away. So, Randy's... Okay, you ready for pop quiz? All right, we're in Bible class. Why in the world would Paul bring up that illustration? Who is Paul writing to? Let's remind ourselves. Who is he writing to? The churches in Rome... Are they Jews or Gentiles? They're Jewish converts. Anybody else? And some Gentiles as well. Actually, they're blended churches. In fact, at times it's even arguable that they were predominantly Gentiles. Uh, in there's certain places in the text you're like, wow, he is clearly addressing the Gentiles. But then there's other places he brings in very, very Jewish sorts of things. For example, would a Gentile know about Abraham? No. But, but he builds Romans 4 all around Abraham. So it's a blend. It's a blended kind of congregation. So evidently, let's, let's be forensic, evidently these Christians in Rome had a distorted perspective on Israel. And they believed Israel at a national level, is cut off and absolutely undeserving and cut off and hopeless. It's as though God divorced Israel. He has rejected Israel. And Paul is, half, Paul is using the story of Elijah as a corrective. Elijah was cho- chosen. He was God's servant. And he still got it wrong. He had a distorted perspective. And so that's why Paul says uh, in the next, the next verse, look at this, um, verse 5, in the same way then, or in other words, just like Elijah got it wrong, you're getting it wrong too. You're just as distorted in your perspectives as, as Elijah was, and I've got to teach you some things, and here's the thing, There has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's grace's choice. That's another cue. That's like, hey, there are 7,000 Israeli men who have not bent the knee to Baal. That would be like saying there's 7,000 Jews who have accepted Christ that are secret under the off-grid and you don't even know who they are, you little churches in Rome. You don't know who they are. You don't know where they are. I am bigger than this thing. And you've got a distorted perspective on the Jews. And I want you to know there are Jewish people converting to Christ you know nothing about. And God has formed a remnant. Therefore, Russ, he will not reject his bride. There is a a remnant. Now, he ties off the theology. He ties off the argument with this amazing statement, verse 6. But if this thing is about grace, not about works, he concludes this. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace is no longer grace. Uh, pa- yes, sir. Very tense. And that's a tremendous question. In fact, it is so tense that right in this period, uh, Jews have been expelled out of Rome. There's been tension with the emperor uh, at the time. Lots of tension. Israel continued to be a thorn in the side of Rome for a long time. And uh, these Jewish men impassioned, you know, ignorance on fire, ignorance on fire, these Jewish men thinking they're going to call the nation back to Yahweh and there'll be national revival and God will raise up Israel like a great army. They would beat Rome, kick Rome out of their borders, expel the demons out of the land because they were kind of in their own land but still in exile with the demonic presence of Rome in her borders. And they all believed in that great hope, the Davidic kingdom. Someone would come, a great warrior, and lead Israel back. And so they would, there would be skirmishes, small political battles, trouble. And eventually Rome had enough. And the Jewish wars began about AD 66. Ed, that's going to put Romans in all likelihood is written about AD 55 to 57-ish. 57-ish. And the Jewish war started eighty sixty six. That's why I was curious. Yep, it's tense. Because some of it might be that. Yep. The Jews who would be in Rome would be feeling yeah. that. I would expect yeah. Quick little comment, Ed. Do you think are we still blaming Israel for things today? Anti-Semitism is alive and well everywhere. Alive and well, isn't it? The problem is still there. Still there. Uh, uh, the people of Islam have made no bones about it. They want Israel destroyed. They want every Israeli dead. The agenda is clear. Very, very clear. So, yeah, lots is going on. And Ed, by the end of the Jewish wars, uh, Jerusalem was leveled. Not one stone left upon the other. So, Colby. You mentioned a distorted perspective. And knowing you, I know that that's a, that's a, thread that meant something mm-hmm. in the whole your your view of this and, and sharing but just thinking of distorted perspective for a minute the distorted perspective of the the Jews when Jesus came was wow this guy's awesome not only can he provide us with beans but I bet he can get us some bullets and you know <laughs> an army goes nowhere without beans and bullets and so they wanted to make him king. Yes. He, scripture says he knew their hearts. Yes. And he, he went away. Yes. So while they're all clamoring to make him king, their distorted perspective was we've got to get rid of these, this Roman scourge. We've got to be great again. And so their perspective was distorted. And he says Christ knew their hearts. Yes. And he, well, he went away. They're trying to grab hold of it. Yes. So yes. they went away. Yes. Talking of grace, our distorted perspective, sometimes we just think we can do nothing. I don't have to do a thing. Yeah. And and then everything's going to be all right. Yes. So there's, there's the two sides of it. 
But the distorted perspective for, for Jews and Romans in Rome would be much like our political distorted perspective is, well, we're all going to a very hot place in a handbasket that's going to catch fire and we're all doomed. And that's a distorted perspective. Yes. Because if, if, if God can save, he can save us just like, you know, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. You know, yes. way back when Nebuchadnezzar yes. wanted to burn them up. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk about grace from uh, an Israeli and even a Greco-Roman perspective. Uh, did the Jews have a basic understanding of grace? I'm not talking about Christian. I'm talking about just the Jewish. And what about Greco-Romans? Did they understand grace? Actually, uh, Matt, you're right. They did. They did. But with a twist. Grace, beautiful favor, merit, pouring out great blessings and acceptance, etc. They did get that. But they got it with one little thing. It's for those who are honorable and deserving. <laughs> 20 years in the Legion. You got land, gold. You, you, did you read my notes? No. Okay. So check. <clears throat> well, so there's this guy, see, and uh, he said this. Uh, a particular scholar named Harrison did a bunch of research in ancient manuscripts and papyrus and and he writes about this story. There's a particular employee of the state of Nero's government. He's an employee of the Neronian uh, government. And it says, quote-unquote, that he has been given, quote-unquote, complete grace in direct proportion to his, servants, to his service to the state. <laughs> How's that for grace? You get what you deserve in perfect measure to your works. <laughs> There's the Greco-Roman perspective. Grace is real, it's beautiful, but only to the deserving and the honorable. That's like saying if you work for the government uh, long enough, you get a really nice retirement. You get your, your villa, your estate. Yeah, they got it. Tim? Isn't that the common understanding of the church Absolutely. Like, we'll all be rewarded in heaven, like, just as good as we are here on earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the difference is, Tim, though, we don't deserve it. Absolutely, we don't deserve it. And so that's why Paul, offering this great corrective, says that it's, it is by grace and therefore not on the basis, ech, ech ergon, um, ergon, it's uh, the, the, the grace doesn't come from works, by works, out of works. It's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Okay, ready? Pop quiz. Time for a vocab test. What does the word ontology mean? Ontology. Don't everyone answer it once. It's a very, very important word. Cooper. Like essence or being something at the core of something's being, isn't that? At the core of something's being. You're moving close to anybody else? Ontology from the Greek root ontos. Yeah, yeah, you're getting at it. Ontology is the discipline of classifying things according to type and nature. In other words, in Archimedes, it is what it is. <laughs> That's ontology. It is what it is. It's the classification of things according to their true nature, their true type, their kind. For example, we have a column called canine. 
Do you put cats in that column? Why not? <clears throat> because that's where the dogs go. You don't, a dog is not a cat, a cat is not a dog. That's ontology. Classify things according to its, its kind or true nature, right? Do you understand this? You ready for some heavy theology? It's, it's ontologically impossible for grace to have works mixed into it. It's an ontological impossibility. The dog cannot meow. The cat cannot bark. It can't happen. It's an ontological impossibility. If, it, if our relationship with God is based on works, then grace is no longer grace. So acceptance by works nullifies grace. Acceptance by grace nullifies works. They are very, very separate ideas. So I've got some questions I want to ask you. And then I want to turn it over to you as, as the gifted body of Christ. Pay attention. Paul just spent chapter after chapter teaching the, the, children, the, the, the Christians at Rome that God has an amazing plan. God has brought the gospel to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a gospel Paul's not ashamed of. He's taught us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. He's taught us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He taught us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He's taught us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's taught us that God is causing all things to work together for good. He's taught us that all of these things are accomplished not by works. He's taught us in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And now he's, he's going to teach us in Romans 11, what about Israel? What's God going to do with Israel? How is he going to handle them? And his answer is this. It's all by grace. And there will be a remnant of Israel. The true Israel will be born again. The true Israel of God. There are Israelis who are believing in Jesus Christ as Messiah. They do exist. Why? Because it's not based on Israel's ability to keep the rules. It's based on grace. It, and if that's good for Israel, it's good for this Gentile, right? It applies to me. Grace applies to me. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So here's some questions. <clears throat> and, and this is a really good time for you to do your best to maybe peel back some layers of religion that may have accumulated on you through the years or maybe through denominational influence, a variety of things. But if you could kind of peel, peel back the layers, and if you could kind of be really transparent, I, I would say this. Do you believe that a restored relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is based on works? Do you believe that? Anybody here secretly tired of trying? Just tired for the trying, you know? Anybody here believe that, it's a, that grace is wonderful? Grace will get you in... But works keeps you in. <laughs> works keeps you here. 
you know, is it grace to get in and grace to stay in? Or is it grace to get in and works to stay in? Which one is it? Anybody tired for the try-in? What should our view of Israel be today? This is, Paul, Paul is pushing, this thing is about Israel. What, what should our view of Israel be today? Do we believe that God is at work in Israel? Still sending in Christian missionaries into Israel? Bringing the gospel to her borders? Teaching Israelis about grace? And expanding that remnant? Are we like Elijah? Do we think we're pretty smart folk? You know? We feel like God's hand is on our lives and all the while have a completely distorted <laughs> perception of things. By the way, uh, you know, we're in a post-truth culture, right? Remember that one? We covered that last Sunday. We're in a post-truth culture. And anytime you, you have a post-truth shaped kind of brain, I'm telling you perspectives are always distorted. Always. When feelings override the facts... There's always distortion. Always. How about this? Wrong perspective of yourself. Wrong perspective of other people. You're the gifted body of Christ. We may need to hear some prophetic wisdom this morning. We may need to hear some words of mercy and encouragement. How would God speak to us through you? Why does this text matter? How does it apply today? You're the gifted body of Christ. Care for yourselves. I think it's uh, pretty interesting that over the last 2,000 plus years, it's, it's comforting to me and also kind of sad. Humans haven't changed that much. <laughs> like we're still dealing with the same issues. Um, I know one of my stumbling stones that I fall into is exactly the the grace and work aspect, but God never tied works to grace. Works was tied to faith, and it's what you do out of your faith, but that doesn't earn you anything. What earn? It's already been you know earned for us through Jesus, His sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, like, in Israel, even today, um, the, I've only been there once, but the one time I was there, I felt like it was, it gave me a very, uh, I don't know how to say it. it, it impacted me pretty heavily when I was there, because we were there on uh, the Wailing Night, which is when... Jerusalem pretty much gets shut down and all of the Jews come from all over the place, different countries, Israel, everything, and they all pack into the city and they go to the Wailing Wall, which I wasn't entirely sure what the Wailing Wall was going on when I was there, but basically what they're doing is they're just praying constantly that God will destroy the Temple of the Rock, which is up there, which is where, you know, big uh, deal for Muslims, holy place for Muslims. And that's what they're praying. And on the wailing night, everybody comes there. Everybody. 
and the city just goes nuts. Like all the different districts, they'll throw up their gates and their walls, you can't go places, and if you don't get out of the city by a certain time, the government shuts down all the roads and everything, and you're just stuck in there. Hmm. And I think it was around like 10 p.m. where we were in there, and we were just above the Wailing Wall, and all these people were down there, and they were just, there's so much noise going on. And then, spontaneously, the Muslim call to prayer started going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. So they had their loudspeakers, and they were, you know, doing their thing. And the Christians weren't let down on this. Then at the same time, all of the Christian churches in the area started ringing their bells. All of them. Wow. And so it was just like this. Yeah, it was just a clamoring, a bunch of noise. And everyone trying to get ahead of the next one and, you know, prove who's right and everything. Mm. And I just thought, I, I thought about this today, and I think a lot of this is explained through the story of, like, Mary and Martha. Um, you know, Mary, um, she was there sitting at Jesus and listening. And, and Martha was trying to work her way there. And I think if people really sit down and they study um, what Jesus has, was saying, what he was really saying, yeah, he was a huge disappointment to a lot of Israelis because they didn't understand. Mm, absolutely. But the ones who did, you know, they connected those dots, and that's what came forth. But we still have that trap to fall into, that we all fall into mm. of, you know, trying to work our way there. Mm. Not really fully grasping grace. Mm. Nat, thank you so much. Good stuff. Someone else. Why does this text matter? How do we understand it? How do we live it out practically today? Terry. If we have accepted grace, my way of thinking, we have an obligation go back to very simple tenet do the right thing at the right time for the right reason mm -hmm. and to me that's what it boils down to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good, bring good, your good. faith to the forefront mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if we don't do that then we have not accepted <coughs> grace. Yeah. Is grace a driver's license to sin? Not at all. Not at all, Terry, is it? Yeah. Grace gives us the, the love, the hope, the joy to begin to love other people and show grace, right? Grace given, grace received, grace given. That's good, Terry. That is so good. Someone else, why does this matter, Justin? I think kind of one of the things Paul's driving home is it's, it's really an identity issue. Um, it's, it's back to Genesis 2. It's, it's the fall, it's the destruction. I mean, when Adam and Eve were in the garden with God, they weren't somebody and they were weren't nobody. They were just with God. And I think what Paul's dealing with is, is the Jews think they're somebody. 
<laughs> and he's really knocking them down to go when you're not. And the Gentiles think they're nobody because of the Jews and their idea and their he's saying, no, you are somebody. And it's this tension that grace and mercy should keep us in. Because if we if we get into grace, it's very easy for us to eventually become like we're God. Right? We can start living and making our own decisions, and it's like God's just a little maid cleaning up after us. And if we get into this whole mercy deal, then it's like it's very easy for us to feel like we don't deserve to be forgiven. Hmm. Like I haven't earned your mercy. I haven't done enough. And then it's like God is this dictator who is micromanaging. You're just juxtaposing and positioning yep. yourself yep. where he'll finally say, yeah, I agree with you. I like you. You're good. Yes. Yeah. I think that's kind of because he later on goes on to say, hey, you Gentiles, you think you're so special. You're the wild root. You're the wild shoot. I grafted you into the, to the yes. tree. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and it's just this whole idea that you know when you sin, you're forgiven and be grateful. But if you if you rest in that long enough, it's very easy for you to start to think you're God. And and it's just kind of like no matter what I do, I get away with it. Mm, license to sin, yeah. But it's uh, it's the other way too, because Christians can easily say I'm not forgivable. Yes. There's no way He will forgive me, and in that way you become like God too. Except it's a yes. very bad side. So it's I about control, see, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and I just see Paul trying to create this healthy tension where eventually what it should do is neutralize your yeah. perspective, and then you go back to Christ as being. Which yes. Is, yes. I stop thinking, and I yes. start viewing myself through. Yes. Yeah, when we have that Elijah perspective, we're going to get it wrong. Right, and I'm all by myself, and I'm, wow. What was it's all up to me, I alone, I'm alone. Yeah, I'm perfect, because obviously I'm the only one following you. Yeah, yeah, that's so good, Justin. Yeah, that's so good. Tim? Uh, That too is a gift, so, yeah. From the beginning, <clears throat> I just say, I cry a lot, guys, so if it makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry if this happens a lot. When I talk about these things and they come out, and it's like I realize the truth of them as I say them. Uh, but uh, it's like from the beginning to the end, uh, God has pursued us. He didn't just toss us out here on the planet and leave us to be in our sin. Jonah. 
there's this, in there you see your rod means to go down. There's your rod, your rod, your rod. And, uh, and he, went, he went down, he went down into the boat, he went down into the whale, and, but God delivered him. And then a few years ago I was thinking how Jesus, your rod, your rod, your rod, he came down and he hovered over the chaos and created life in us. And then your rod, he came down in the flesh and walked among us and delivered us from ourselves. And then your rod, he came down to indwell us. And he didn't leave us. He's pursued us from the beginning. He spent his time in the middle of his people in the desert. He spends his time now in the middle of his people in our very beings. And he didn't leave us to ourselves. So this idea that, that grace is... Uh, uh, entered into through faith because of something we worked up is it's as erroneous as is that it applies to everyone whether they know who God is or not and uh, it's all Him it all keeps coming back to Him over and over again and if we keep that in our mind we stay humble and we don't honor <coughs> God and, uh, and you know we don't we don't enter into Christ we don't make louder noises than other people to try to prove anything yeah we just yeah. are and then out yeah. of our being we do. Yeah, that is so good, guy. Tim? Kind of along that same line, but it ties back to the line. Yeah. Uh, and all through my childhood, and, and I know a lot of other people that grew up like this, but the church preached grace, but practice works. You know, it's this thing of, That's good, Tim. Childlike faith, huh? As far as I know, children usually don't have the answers, do they? I'm not even sure what the questions are. They believe. So, All right, so, 8057-ish, Paul is writing this letter. A few years later, he writes another letter, but this time it's in prison. He's been arrested. And tensions are really layering up. And it's arguable, just I'm not sure when you date the death of Paul, but it could be early to mid-60s. Some date later than that. But it's 
things are getting politically very tense in Paul's life. He's in prison. And by the way, I'm not sure if any of you have noticed the varying perspectives in your responses this morning. It's almost like some, some, there's a perspective here, like Tim was talking about, hey, it's not about the doctrine. It's not about the theology. It's about childlike faith. And what did Guy say? But you know what? That innocent kind of nebulous kind of view can be abused, and you can become the person that just is really tra- kind of trashes grace. And Justin, you were saying the very same thing. So, so what's going on? You know, is it works? Is it grace? Is it grace? Worky grace? Gracie works? What? It, what is this thing? What do we do? Paul's in prison now. Been arrested. And this is how he ties it all together and pay very, very close attention to the words. Very close attention. About 80, 60, he's in chains. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So something really special happens in Paul's heart. It goes from a grace works tension to something brand new. A grace walk tension. Grace work, grace walk. And there it is. Guy, there it is. Walk out the grace that he has given us. You can't sit there and be passive. It's like saying, God, I want to mow my lawn based on your grace. God says, okay, did you put fuel in the mower? Start it. Go, start Cutting the grass. Yeah. We've got to take responsibility with the grace, right? What is the one thing we can do as Christian Christians that helps us to not commit a sin against anybody? The one thing. If you do this, you don't sin against anybody. Love. Love. Yeah. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. It's not hard. You've been given grace. Walk it out. Walk out the grace. Don't get it ontologically screwed up. <laughs> don't try to do gracey works and don't try to do worky grace. Don't do that. Soak up the amazing grace. How sweet that sound, eh? Walk it out. It's not work it out. It's walk it out. Walk in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you all for sharing. Thank you for, for speaking wisdom to us. Some of you, have, you're still holding on to grace, or, or to works. You'll still, you'll still come to God, and most likely because of your mom and dad, by the way. Most likely because of your parents, you have this conditional view of acceptance. God will love and accept me as long as I, as long as I do what makes him happy. You're, you're bringing your parental junk to the throne room of God. You need to learn to leave that behind you. You need to understand acceptance through Jesus Christ. Kobe? I, I just, 
when Justin started talking, you you put a thread through a needle, and it it just as you said it, it grabbed all, everything that was said. I don't know the the handsome guy in the gray coat in the front row there, but he he was saying it as well, and it goes back to a point that I I tried to make. I don't make it successfully, especially when I'm driving. Thank you, Davis kids. But the issue that most of us have with, with grace, with works, with faith, with why in the world are we here? Not here on earth, because, I mean, let's not worry ourselves with that, but why are we here? Why are we sitting in blue seats on a concrete floor why are we here? And Justin, you said it. We have an identity crisis. Uh, the gentleman that was listening to all the, the chaos going on at the Wailing Wall, that, there's an identity crisis. And what God has wanted from us from the very beginning, from the very first bloodshed on this planet to the, the next sequence of bloodshed, is he wants us to understand that identity is God-given. And we are the only thing on the planet, we are the only created thing that can shun its identity. A tree can never scurry down into the river and say, ha, I'm a rock. It can't do that. It absolutely sings the praises that God gave it, that God breathed into it. We are the only thing that can shame that. We're the only thing that can, can say, I am of God, and I am going to treat you with contempt. And so when, just, when you said identity, it just, it just hit me. That's the whole thing that God mm -hmm. wanted us to understand is our identity in Him. And you know, some people may argue with me and well, if you know me, you know I don't care. If you argue with me, I kind of like it. <laughs> um, the, the only reason there is existence, the only reason that this has come into being is God wanted to create human beings. Yes. Everything else supports us. Yes. And there may be some big bangers out there that would argue, and I don't care. That's fine. I'm not saying I'm right. I just... That's my belief that the identity piece is so important. If you identify with what God meant by making you, then, then finding a way through grace and faith and the things you do and believing yourself, believing that heaven awaits, then you've done what God intended for you to do. You've identified yourself. Mm -hmm. That's so good, Colby. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. There's been an ontological change. Behold, all things are the old things are past. Behold, the new things have come. Absolutely, we are now in Christ. By the way, if we really get grace, how would we treat Israelis, those of us who are white, how would you treat those of us who are black? 
How would a Brazilian treat a Caucasian? How did the black treat the whites? The women, the men, the men, the women, the rich, the poor. Would something be different about how we see people and the wonderful Hispanics? Jesus comes to church here. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. You know, how, how does he treat us? How do we treat, what are you going to do? Does grace make a difference even in our relationships? How do you get along with each other? Absolutely. Because we, are, we find our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes all issues, all social issues regarding gender identification, everything. Hey, people are people. A soul is a soul, and it's either going to go to heaven or hell. Bottom line is, what are we going to do in the in-between spot? Okay? How are we going to show the love and grace of God? So you all are wonderful. Like, I'm excited. I can't wait to, to sing. I know Stephen is going to, and the team will be guiding us in. in... I mean, how do you say thank you for grace? <laughs> how do you do that? Let me pray. Father, uh, amazing grace, how sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. God, thank you so much that grace and works can't mix together. If it did, grace would no longer be grace. And thank you that we are saved by grace through faith. But you've also called us to walk out that grace. God, I pray for Israel. I pray that, that you would lead national revival in Israel. And I pray that they would know you as Lord and Savior and they would understand your son, your Jewish son, the Messiah. I pray for the peace of Israel. Father, I pray for Muslims all throughout the holy city. That they too would hear the gospel above the noise, above the, above the political mess that goes on. And I ask, would you please lead them to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for Netanyahu, for Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and world leaders, Putin, all over the world, that they would have hearts turned to you, they would have ears to hear, and they would turn to you, and they would know and understand your son, Jesus Christ. Please, would help us to love as others as you have loved us regardless of their station in life, please. Thank you for faith and for hope and for love and for grace that is incorruptible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.